0: All right. All right. Uh, we have been telling you that we'd love to have your kids stay with you. If kids learning beside their parents is our is our ultimate is our goal eventually. But uh, if your kids are going to class today, they can go now. If they're staying and they need one of those fancy handouts created by Pastor John, just slip your hand up and we will make sure somebody gets to you. All right. Revelation chapter twenty-one. There should be Bibles in the chairs in front of you. This is not hard to find. If you go all the way to the back of your Bible, it's the page before the end. All right, you guys are really quiet this morning. All right, page 1041. If you're borrowing a Bible, I looked at that much. So here we are. We've seen everything that Revelation has to cover. Uh, Can you bring the house lights up, please? Uh, We've seen all that Revelation talks about. It goes from everything from speaking to the churches that live in the first century. It goes through the story of the Bible. It covers everything from Genesis all the way literally to Revelation. It uses Old Testament imagery to explain some of the visions. It uses Jesus' teachings fairly heavily. And it gives us a glimpse of both what is and what is to come. And when I say what is to come... I mean, what is ultimately to come? We don't take the book of Revelation and put it as future, but rather as mostly present tense. It's written to churches that exist under persecution. There is a call to all churches throughout history to endure, to overcome, to conquer. And last week, we came to that final resolve that this earth, this world will be Redeemed or reclaimed, and, and depending on how you look at it, either destroyed or remade, and destroyed is probably too strong of a term, but completed and purified would probably be a better way of saying it. Just like our bodies must die, and then we will be resurrected for eternity. Right? And so we talked about both spiritual life and spiritual eternal death. And we talked about physical life and eternal physical life and those being different. And so here we are, last week we left off with the destruction of death and Satan and evil and sin and all that is behind us, all that is negative put behind us. And then today we pick up and say, okay, so then what next? And so this is that one place ultimately in the book of Revelation where we get to just kind of see a look that is that is at what will be our eternal home. Now again, it's written in Revelation, making it an apocalyptic genre, meaning it uses heavy imagery. We're going to work through the, the collective total of 21 and 22 today, wrapping up the book. And it completes itself with what our future, our eternal future looks like. And I believe the purpose of that is so that as we are called to overcome, that we are called to endure, called to conquer this world, that we will know what we are called to eternally. And so here's just kind of a starting point or a main idea for the, for the day, an eternal kingdom. We'll put this on the screen. The kingdom of Christ was inaugurated at his birth and will be consummated at his final return. Began as Jesus enters into human history, either with the birth or, or even maybe the resurrection, but it starts with Jesus as Jesus is here on earth teaching about the kingdom, calling people into the kingdom, and then it will be finally fully realized or consummated at his final return. In other words, it would become fully only kingdom at that point. Right now, we kind of see ourselves in living in overlapping kingdoms. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom, but we live here on earth. And what we will see today is that all of it is brought here. And so inaugurated his birth, consummated his final return. Those who are in Christ reign with him for eternity. I think I went with reign with him eternally or for eternity. And you got the typos. You got both words. There you go. So we reign for eternally. That's somewhere in English. Yeah. Revelation chapter 21, let's pick up in verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. As I was wrapping up the commentary I was reading through this year, or this this time, Uh, the uh, one by, it's a new one by Tom Schreiner, who has been incredibly helpful. I got to talk to him early in this series about how he did some things years ago when he was a teacher in a church and now he's a professor at a seminary. And one of his comments I noticed was that that last week we were called, we the church, whoever, believers, past, present, future, were called the bride of Christ. And then I, I also noticed that Now, the new heaven, new earth is also called the bride of Christ. And he comments on that, and I hadn't really noticed it until he commented on it. And so he asked the question, so are we the church? And when I say the church, not just the local church here, are we the kind of the universal church, all believers, past, present, and future, Old Testament, New Testament, all who are truly believers? Are we the bride, or is the new heaven and new earth the bride? And his answer was, yes, both, right? Both are a part of Christ's redemption. If you go all the way back to Genesis, as God creates, it's God's world, it's God's creation. God creates a place where you and I get to live. And when God created it and set man into it with all the other living beings, he created a world without sin, and it was his place. And he put man in it, and gave man a responsibility. Humanity gets the responsibility of tending the earth that God gave us, multiplying or or go from, from couple to family to generations, from garden to city to kingdom. That was the plan, right? And that all of it was God's, and he delegated authority for us to oversee not only the world, but the relationship with God. We were to tend the world we live in and Tend our relationship with God simply by being obedient and worshipful to God. Obviously, sin enters into human history and is the separation. When we see that curse in Genesis 3, we see that the ground is cursed. We see that humanity is cursed. We see that death becomes a part of human history. And so when we, we fast forward all the way to the other end of Scripture, what we see is the renewal of all things as well. And so the entire existence, eternally, including us, is called the bride of Christ. Now, throughout the rest of the New Testament, if you ever see the words, the bride of Christ, it's always talking about us. But here, it talks about also the renewed world that we live in is adorned or dressed or beautiful like a bride. So why do we need a new heaven or a new earth? Well, it's just what we just said that sin impacts everything, right? Sin has impacted this world. The global scale things, injustices, nation against nation, all those things are a result of sin. Maybe not your sin or my sin, maybe. But all those things are the result of people that can't seem to get along, Right Or some people maybe that worship God and some people that don't worship God. And, and both trying to reconcile their distinctions, their differences. And what we see is that sin impacts everything. Injustice and inequities in our country come from sins. They might be sins we've done. They might be sins we don't do. They might be just sins and, and brokenness that we inherit that still exist today. But at the root of all the problems is Sin. At the root of all our problems is sin. Any problem I might have between myself and my wife or myself and you, at the bottom of it somewhere is sin. Mine, yours, ours, not my wife's. She's perfect. That'll keep me out of trouble today at least. But at the root of everything is sin. And so the whole world being renewed, a new heaven, a new earth. You might ask, well, why new heaven? Well, it's, just, it's a part of the package, right? Everything made new. When we think of heaven, we think of something distant and far away, a place where God is. And we'll talk about that. Where God is becomes where we are or where we will be. It says no more sea. And remember, throughout all of this, we've said that the sea in Hebrew literature always represents chaos. So a new heaven, a new earth, no more sea, right? No more chaos, a world without chaos. Verse three, and I heard a voice, John says, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's that word dwelling I want you to see. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Same word, they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is really a powerful passage about the covenant fulfillment by God. We we talked about this a few weeks ago that God enters into this relationship with humanity and it, at that point it's a relationship simply of obedience. Once that obedience has been broken and there's disobedience or there's sin in human history it separates God and humanity. But God covenants right there in the garden right upon kind of right after sin enters into human history. God covenants to overcome sin. His promise back in the garden is about he, Jesus, who will crush Satan. And then everybody from that moment in the garden looked forward to Christ to come. They may not have said Jesus. Maybe they lived in the Old Testament times under the kings or the prophets or the judges or under Egypt or whatever it might be. The promise was one day... Someone will come who will solve the problem. And so they, they died either looking towards that promise to be fulfilled, or maybe they were one of the disciples that knew Jesus, one of the many that saw Jesus live and, and die and resurrect from the grave. Maybe they saw that and they believed in him. Maybe they're like us who come after that part of the story, and we have faith that Jesus will return. We believe what Jesus did here and that that solves our sin issue and that we await his return but all who die in faith are all who better yet live in faith that's the body of Christ right that that is the universal church all who ever believe and that covenant has been that one day Jesus will overcome all of this and and we see this thing play out over time with different groups of people, whether it be Israel, the church, or with a a man named Abraham, or a man named Moses, or whatever it might be. But what we see is God move closer and closer and closer to us as Christ accomplishes. And so in the beginning, what we see, and it's in Exodus, we'll put this up. It says, God speaking says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who Brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. There's that word dwell. Another way of translating that word is tabernacle. In other words, that that Hebrew word there is also the Hebrew word for tabernacle. That I will tabernacle among them. Right? I will dwell among them. I will like pitch a tent among them. That's what he's saying. Right? I will dwell among the people. And so that's how God lives with Israel. He fills the tabernacle as they build it. I will live among them. This is God up on the, on the mountain on Mount Sinai with Moses saying, here's what we're going to do. You're going to build this. I will fill this. And when my presence lifts up and leaves and it goes somewhere, you're to follow it. And when it stops, you're to set up camp and rebuild the tabernacle. And that's what they do. Until an entire generation passes away in the wilderness and it moves them into the land that God has given them and they set up the tabernacle there and then ultimately they build a more permanent dwelling, a temple. So God's presence remains among them. As the tribes set up in the wilderness, they kind of, it looks like this almost like a cross shape. They set up this way and this way and this way and the tabernacle's in the middle. And when God's presence comes and fills it, He's among the people. Now, fast forward to Jesus. We think about when Jesus comes, and it says that, I think all the way back to John chapter 1. It says that the Word, remember it was in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created through Him. Not anything was created that wasn't created through Him and by Him. Right? Then you scroll down a little bit, and the Word became flesh meaning Jesus, and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Jesus came and lived amongst humanity. So there's God's presence again in Christ, in flesh, among the people. He tabernacles among them. Later in the next chapter, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. They're like, it took us years and years and years to build the temple, but it says he's talking about his body. See, Jesus becomes the embodiment of the presence of God among the people. So we still see God among the people in their tabernacle. And when they were obedient, that remained. And later, they kind of lost that. It's a long story. But then now what we get is Jesus, God's presence, God among the people in flesh. But it doesn't stop there. See, in 1 Corinthians 3, we'll put this up. The author says, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you. And anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. See, this isn't about whether you eat too much McDonald's and destroy the temple. It isn't that. Should you care for the body you've been given? Sure, yes, right? You only, as I'm learning at 54 now, you only get one of them. And uh, that's all you get. <laughs> so take care of it. Just words of the wise, right? And so what we see is we become the dwelling place of God. Right I know we call this the house of God. The reason this is the house of God or the reason we call churches that is because you're here. Because we are here. Because we're the people of God and the presence of God is with us. Right? When two or three are gathered, there I am among you. dwelling. I want you to hear that when God says these words because there are thousands of years of covenant promise being fulfilled in a sentence we might naturally just pass by. Verse three, I heard, John says, the loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle, the presence of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, but God himself will be with them as their God. Not God's presence in a fire or a cloud, in a tabernacle or in a temple, hidden behind walls and curtains called the Holy of Holies, separated from people. Not just bound in Christ, inside his flesh, where he was in and among people, but really how many ever people he could be around at the time was the limitation, right? And then we see Jesus ascend back to heaven and he tells the church, wait here, wait here in Jerusalem until my spirit comes upon you, fills you. Then you'll be my witnesses. Then, so God's presence will come and fill the believer. That's, very much, that's exactly what happens in the next chapter when, when they're baptized. And it says the Spirit fills the people. Right before that, as they're gathered together in the upper room, about 120 Christians. A, a church just about like this. And the Spirit fills them. So now we've got God's Spirit living inside of us. So God's Spirit among. God's Spirit in Jesus. God's Spirit in us now. And then we get God living, dwelling with all of us. In this renewed heaven and earth, the presence of God changes from, from limited, confined inside of you or inside of the person sitting next to you, inside of me, but now it's everywhere with everyone. Because it's all God's people, sin has been removed, the curse has been lifted, the, the covenant has been fulfilled. Jesus says, a new covenant I give to you for the forgiveness of your sins, a covenant in my blood. It's now filled. All is removed. As we begin to look at eternity, it's about the place and the presence of God and our proximity within it. So here's a note for you on the screen. The presence of God. What is explained here cannot be fully comprehended by sinful humanity, you and I. We have never experienced a world without sin or the presence of God fully. It's like trying to imagine being a parent when you're just a child. You can't comprehend it. You understand there's a relationship there. But we have never been in a world without sin. We struggle with the presence of God as it is. And so we can't fully comprehend what it means to be in a world where God is absolutely present And there are no barriers, because sin is a barrier between us and God that we can't overcome, but through the gospel. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, I think of um, a world without... Sin or a world filled with God's presence. A, a place where there's no mourning or crying or pain. Where there's no injustice, no problem, no struggle, no heartache, no, no negative at all. No sin, no curse, no limitations to us and, and our God. And there, there's no restraints, there's no barriers. And I, I try and imagine what that might be like. And I'm always drawn back to this one image. And every one of us has known someone who's been homeless over a period of time, and maybe it's somebody we know, maybe they're not somebody we know. They get to this place where they haven't showered in so long, where the, the smell is obvious to me and, and to you, but they live in it, right? They they don't smell that, they don't understand what the, that they that they have that smell. They just they're so used to it, and and that's the world we live in. That is so corrupted by sin and, and so foul, what we live in, it's all we know. That we can't even conceive what it would be like because we don't know anything else. But the promise is there will be a world, an existence, an eternal life filled with God's presence. Where there is no sin, no pain, no mourning, no no, nothing. Death and sin and Satan have been destroyed. No adversary. Perfect unity between us and and between us and God. All here on earth, heaven and earth coming to us, redeeming the world that's been created. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's as good as time any is to take a drink of water, right? To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Whoever's thirsty for God will be satisfied. Forever satisfied. Your being spiritually parched is is removed. Your longing for becomes fulfilled. He who is on the throne said, I am making all things new. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. Remember, I I keep saying this. There's a calling to all of us. And that's the problem with futuring this book or even past tensing this book. Just because it was written to a church 1,900-ish years ago, whose struggle was Rome and cult worship and Judaism, persecuting, just because it was written to them doesn't mean it doesn't have timeless application. Now, yes, we're in a chapter, chapter 21, chapter 22, that are entirely in front of us as far as time goes. But the, the vast majority of Revelation center on a throne and our relationship to the throne now and the calling throughout the calling to each of the seven churches whether they're doing really well or or they're really kind of out in left field the calling is to overcome to conquer to endure and that repeated phrase is the theme of revelation and again, some think that when all the hard things hit, that the church will be removed. But then why the call to endure? Why the reminder to conquer? And, and why would we take the only presence of God in the world out of the world? When Jesus says, endure for a short time, and you will receive your inheritance. Right? Overcome this world, receive what is next. So verse 7, it says, to the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's the the plural, like humanity of sons and daughters. But listen, he says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we talked about last week, that there will be a lake of fire, a hell, created, It's created for Satan and for those angels that are rebelling against God becoming demons that follow him. It's for them. That's what it's designed for. But it also will include all who don't follow Jesus. All who don't conquer. All who don't stay faithful. All who don't remain in Christ. And that's the heartbreak of the story. Is it's meant for an adversary that, that opposes the church. But well, some will be misled. But to the one who conquers, you inherit this heritage. You inherit this eternity. We must overcome the world. But look who it says doesn't inherit that. It's those who do not stand up and live for Jesus. And one of the terms used there is, is cowardice. It's a unique term. It talks about liars and idolaters and things like that. And that makes sense. We have other passages like that. But cowardice, the the inability or the fear of standing up to the world you live in, the world we live in. That's what he's addressing here. That it takes courage to stand for Jesus. That it takes, it, you have to stand against the world that we live in. As we've been talking here about different things in church, we, we've kind of identified that we're not only standing against culture, secular culture, we're not only standing for truth against things that are not true here. But we're also fighting a ton of Western and American church culture. The church has drifted into this ideological, political mess over here that looks a lot more like the world over here than it does like Christ. And over here, where there is no God, there is no Christ over here to them, there's the world over here that is trying to kind of put forward a cultural truth. And over here, a religious exception or acceptance, and we drift with these things. But Jesus doesn't fit either camp. He doesn't fit the religious left or the religious right, for that matter. He doesn't fit either political party. He'd be ousted out of both. Therefore, we can't find ourselves in these categories. That to live for Jesus means to stand up against what is normal here. What is normal even accepted amongst churches, or what is normal and accepted outside of churches. Neither when Jesus entered into the world 2,000 years ago, he encountered the same thing in Judaism. There was the religious right and the religious left, and the religious left had become all functionally secular. And the religious right had become all rules and morals. Both of them had lost sight of God. And we struggle with that today. To the one who conquers, you inherit this eternity. Eternity. Sometimes it means just standing up against all that is different and standing for Jesus. That might be very unpopular, but to the one who overcomes, here is the heritage. Verse 9, it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So that language is used again. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of Jesus, the lamb. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit. One of the many times it says that in Revelation. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes and the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and the north three gates, and the south three gates, and the west three gates, and on the and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So this heavenly city is now being brought to earth. The imagery, obviously, is of beauty and this repeated imagery. Some of this we've seen in the throne room in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. We see it throughout revelations always describing this majesty this beauty this power this glory and now all of that is being brought down to earth and i don't know if we learn or if i and let me just say me i don't know if i got this idea as a kid uh, from the cartoons when somebody would die and all of a sudden they go up to heaven right i don't know if that gives us this idea that heaven is above us somewhere right that we go to but heaven comes down to us—that the earth is renewed and made as it was—and we 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 treat heaven. Same cartoons show someone dying and becoming an angel. Angels aren't people, and people don't become angels. Angels are created beings; they're an entirely different species. We don't become angels. We live eternally, either with God or apart from God. But we have these kind of false cultural ideas. What happens is heaven consumes the world we live in, that it remakes the broken world, that the presence of God comes fully with us, and that we live here, not somewhere else, that we live in this world, but a renewed, a perfected, a restored, a redeemed world, one that we don't even have the foggiest notion of what that would look like necessarily. We can do that teaching by negative. You can learn, but like it won't have pain. It won't have sin. It won't. But we, we don't really even have a category for that because this is all we know. So we have this idea. These 12 show that all the people of God, past tense or, or Old Testament and New Testament, all the people of God are included. So the references to the patriarchs and the apostles. And we see this great city with great walls being built. Uh, I remember during the 2016 election where uh, that was Trump, uh, Trump Clinton, right? And, and the big thing was, I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to build a wall. And, and you would hear all the adversaries say, oh, he, that is so, so against what God would have us do. And, and you know how everybody likes to co-op scripture when they're trying to make a political point, right? And I always would giggle. I'm thinking like the entire book of Nehemiah is about building a wall. There's even a wall in heaven. No? All right. So... Oh, yeah. All right. So a city comes down with walls. Just a joke. All right. Stone me later. It's, it's all good. But the idea is to remind us that God renews and God will re- restrain and eliminate and get rid of anything that would come and affect us. The purpose of the wall is an image. No, I don't really think there's walls there. It's an image that's given to us. Of the protection of God eternally. Of the foundations that was built by the patriarchs who lived in faith. And passed their faith on generation by generation by generation by generation. And then eventually Jesus enters into the story and accomplishes the gospel. And he hands that off to his disciples whom he sends. And the word apostle means Sent. Those are those students of his that are sent out. And here we are, proof, legacy of that work. And that that's all represented in eternity. No matter when you lived in the past or during the life and death and resurrection of Jesus or waiting his return, no matter where you live in the story, that all who die in faith are included. And the one who spoke to me, verse 15 had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. No idea what that even means. Verse 18, the wall was built of, at least I'm honest, right? The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall, the city, were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite. Never even, don't even know. Eighth is beryl, ninth is topaz, uh, tenth is, again, chrysophase. One of you is going to come up and tell me after service how to pronounce those, because you know, and I don't. The eleventh is jacinth, and the twelfth is amethyst. And the twelve gates were the twelve pearls, and each of the gates made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. This description here is made or written or meant to make you feel something. That you should feel the beauty of eternity. I don't know how 12 gates each have pearls that become one pearl. I don't have the first clue. And what a human measurement that is also an angelic measurement, not a clue. Man, I don't think that's the point. See, the point is to paint a picture in our brains that isn't necessarily visible, but rather emotional. Something that moves us to a place where we understand the, the point behind it is the beauty and the majesty. And I, I'll give you the one thing that I think makes the most sense. And it's this last line, the second half of verse 21. It says, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Here's what I hear. The thing that everybody strives for as utmost value today in gold, right? That that's kind of one of those highest things. That's like the stuff we walk on. You with me? Like the values that we place on things, that becomes like asphalt. I don't know anybody collecting asphalt at home. Are we checking Siri how to say them? All right. So, uh, <clears throat> good. Let me know what I said wrong. Uh, the streets being paved with gold, that's the idea. To remind us of all the things that we think are like this, they're just the, found, they're just the thing we walk on. That the beauty of eternity is immeasurable and incomprehensible and just not known to us. It's, it's above what we think or understand. It's to give us that idea. So just think of the things we strive for being Of the lowest value. Verse 22. And it says. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God. The Almighty and the Lamb. Right. No temple. We already said. No tabernacle. God is presence. God's dwelling is there. God is fully there. And fully present. You don't have to go to a place. To gather with his people. Or meet with God. Or to corporately pray. Or worship. Or hear the word. He's there. Everybody is in Christ. And His presence is God and the Lamb. It's God and Jesus. And this this whole, the next section, the the parallels between who is the great I Am. Is it God the Father? Yes, it is in one point. Then it's Jesus reminding us that Jesus isn't just a separate Savior. But He's God who became flesh. He's a part of the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, that has reconciled us to God, us to Him. And that he is the very presence, eternally. Verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, for the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. To be fair, there's walls, but the gates stay open. i got to be fair, all right? Verse 27, or no, second half, 26, they will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Last week we looked at that, the book of life, the, the book that Jesus gave his life to secure our name in. We were singing a song earlier. And I just noticed that the lyrics to it remind us that we are secure in Christ's hand. Right? As we talk about our faith, our faith is secure. If we're saved, we're saved. We're not maybe saved. That we're secured eternally. Now, if that becomes an excuse for you to live any way you want to, I have a question about you being in Christ's hand to begin with. You with me? If I felt like, oh, I can just do anything then, then we should have questions. But when we're in Christ, Christ says, I hold you in my hands. John chapter 10, no one can steal you out of my hand. And we see this, the security found in Christ, this safety and security found that nothing evil will ever enter in. See, sin entered into the garden. The opportunity was there. Why? I don't know. But what we're told is here, it will never happen. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, broad as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. I'm going to kind of connect this piece to Jesus, and then we'll read it again. You guys all know the story, John chapter 4. It's a beautiful story of Jesus as he kind of crosses out of Galilee, moves into Samaria, and the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. And, and this was uh, kind of an ethnic divide. The Samaritans were half Jewish and half other nation, And they were just kind of this whole thing. And there was this divide between Jews and Samaritans. And as Jesus goes the short distance, which is traveling through Samaria, rather than what many Jews would do is cross over the sea, go up and then cross back over. He goes through the land He begins to talk to people and he meets a woman at a well. And as he talks to her, he begins to proclaim who he is to her. He does so by kind of telling her her life, the secrets that she has. And he loves her in the midst of this. That woman runs back into her town and tells everybody about Jesus and many come to faith. It's in that passage we read this, John chapter four. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. Jesus claims to be that living water that satisfies our spiritual thirst. Right? He uses a human need, thirst, to, be, to to teach about a spiritual need that we have for Jesus. And he says that I am living water. Now, I want you to see this in Revelation 22 again. Let's start back in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We get two really important things here. The river of life. Now, that's, that's a, a, a passage right out of the prophet Ezekiel, who sees this eternal view. For sake of time today, we didn't go into that. But Ezekiel sees this vision. Now, God gives the same vision to John. He sees this river flowing out of the temple. Now, remember, It's imagery, it's apocalyptic genre. Remember what we were just told, no temple, no tabernacle, God dwells with them. Again, imagery, right? From God's presence flows water of life, fulfilling what Jesus claimed about himself to be living water that satisfies spiritual thirst, that he is all that we need. And then it says also that that on the other side of that will be the tree of life. And we're reminded again, all the way back to the book of Genesis. See, God created humanity, designed them to be worshipers of God, to not just sing songs, we say this every week, but to live a life glorifying God. That's what a life of worship looks like, that we live our lives to glorify God. And they do that for a bit, and then they decide to glorify themselves, and they're deceived and led by temptation into sin, and sin is just easily understood as instead of going and doing what God has called us to do, what is best for us, We begin to distrust God or disbelieve God. And then we take things into our own hands, and that's sin. And humanity sinned and went its own way by disobeying God. And here creates the problem, the separation between God and man, the the curse that eventually comes over humanity and over the earth, and all the things that we're seeing being restored right here exist back here. And that's where God makes the claim that Jesus will come and crush Satan's head. That he will have victory over Satan and sin and death. The very thing we saw last Sunday in Revelation. But after that, God removes them from the garden. He covers their sin. He forgives their sin. He sacrifices the first animal pointing forward to Christ. To how Christ will overcome Satan, sin, and death. But then they're removed. And the tree of life is removed. And this tree that gives eternal life is taken from humanity so that they might not, we might not take and eat and live eternally broken. And so this is restored. Now. now that all things are repaired, now that sin is removed, now that death is removed, now that Satan is removed, now that all that is wrong is gone and all that is right is present and God's presence is back and all is well, Now, now the tree of life is returned. And again, we don't have to shift from metaphoric or or image-driven or apocalyptic to literal. We don't have to do that. We understand the meaning. The meaning is that eternity is returned to humanity, but not a broken eternity, but a renewed, a redeemed, a fixed humanity. Because that which was taken by sin has now been replaced through Christ forever. Verse 4 says, then we will see his face they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember that name or marking is about where we worship and who we worship. You can worship Satan, take the mark of the beast, or you can be sealed by the name of Jesus and worship God. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads. Verse 5, and night will be no more. There will, be, there will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. These words are trustworthy and true. These words. He's talking about the entire book. Not just, hey, listen to what I say. The entirety of what is written, he says, is trustworthy and true. This repeated command to overcome And conquer this world. Verse 7. Jesus speaks here. And behold I am coming soon. Blessed is the one. Who keeps the words of this prophecy. Of this book. This is the sixth blessing of Revelation. We've pointed them out along the road. We've seen as each of the seven blessings. Have come out. Starts in chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads these words aloud. Blessed are you who hear. And who keep the words written in it. Now we're on the back end, we're at the end of the book, and we have it again. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So in order to receive the blessing, there's two things you really need to know. You you need to to know that it's meant for you to understand. It's not supposed to be scary or frightening or confusing. and And I hope that over the last few months, that there's kind of getting a new handle on Revelation. That the imagery that shows up is consistent and understandable. And even some of the things that we don't have good answers for, we understand them in their context. And then we can kind of get our our heads around this. But not only does it imply that we're to understand it, and it implies that we're to obey it, that the overcoming, the conquering, the enduring, that that's meant for you and for me. That we are called to live in this world on purpose for Christ, for Christ's purpose. But with intention, and when that happens, we will meet resistance we 'll re- we'll meet resistance sometimes from the world around us sometimes we 'll meet resistance from those in the church we 'll meet resistance because there are false gospels out there all over the place. the prosperity doctrine and the name and claim, all these different things that are meant to just kind of deceive you and push you off 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 the idea that Jesus has called us to that we are to be here. Remaining, conquering, enduring, overcoming. Because the purpose with which he created us for is eternity. The mission that we get to be on is today. But the purpose is eternity. So let's look at some ways on how we can apply this to our lives. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard them and saw them, I fell to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. That's the second time John has done that, by the way. Then he's just overwhelmed, right? He didn't know what to do here. So he falls down and he worships. The angel says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't seal up the words of this book. But don't keep this to yourselves. Pass this on. This, this message is to be kept. So here's a note for you obedience to Revelation. Revelation is God's word to be obeyed, says that in Revelation 1, here and now in 22.10. Obedience means it is for us. We are to endure. We are to overcome this world. We are to be lights in a dark world. These are God's commands for us to obey today. We are to overcome. The blessing is in obedience. The call is to overcome. The call is to conquer. The call is to endure this world. Verse 11, let the evil doer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Evil people are going to do evil. That is their nature. They're not evil because they do evil. They're evil, therefore they do evil things. And we are holy to do holy things. That we are set apart for God to be holy to be set apart, right? That we are to do what God calls us to do. So here's a note for you. Let the holy be holy. Holy is defined as set apart for God's purpose. Living set apart for God in this world is the opposite of living for this world. You must be one or the other. You cannot be both. You cannot live for God in this world. You must live for God and overcome this world. You can't live for this world and live for God at the same time. Verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, my judgment, my penalty, to repay each one for what he has done. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's a claim that God made earlier. Jesus identifying with God. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are the ones who wash their robes so that they might have the right to eat of the tree of life. And they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There's your final blessing. Blessing number seven, Beatitude seven of Revelation. And it brings us all the way back to the gospel. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation comes from the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus himself, of God who became flesh and lived a sinless life for us, gave his penalty for us and resurrected from the grave to secure our names in the book of life. Our robes, our, our life, if you will, are washed clean, our, our sin is removed, our righteousness is given to us, or Christ's righteousness is given to us because of his life and death and resurrection for us. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus claims to be the very name we learned in Revelation 5, the root of David, the descendant, the eternal king who will always sit on the throne that is from the son of David. Right, Jesus, fully God, fully man, a descendant of David in human flesh, Always, eternally, God on the throne. Verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. See, that calling is come. We talked about, about this one time prior. Come, Lord Jesus, come is the, the prayer of those who have died in faith. The martyrs cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come, return, repair, restore, redeem all things, Jesus. And if you're in Christ today, this could be your prayer. This should be your prayer. You should be able to to say the words, come, Lord Jesus, come, without any reservation, with no fear, with no hesitation, that Jesus would come and make everything right. I said maybe the one thing holding us back are those people who we know who don't know Jesus who are not found in the gospel, whose names we desire to see written in the book of life. But beyond that, we should not hesitate in desiring this end to come. So here's a note for you. All who are Christ, desire him. The spirit and the church say, come, all who are Christ, desire him to come. Christ's bride is not afraid or in love with this world, but longing for his return. We should long for the return of Jesus. We'll close with this. I warn everyone, verse 18, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone, that's a strong statement. Verse 19, if anyone takes away the words of the bark of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that John blesses us. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The end. And our message comes to its conclusion with everything made right forever, eternally. And what we're called to do is back all the way up to us now and ask what matters most. If this is true forever, and I mean ever and ever and ever, not this little life we live, but forever, if that is true, that should reshape what matters today. We should understand ourselves in light of this family of families. We should understand ourselves in light of the purpose that Jesus gives us, the mission he sets us on for this short time that we're here. We should understand that we can only live either A, for Jesus, or B, for this world. And we should understand the gravity of that decision with every breath that we take. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. How can we not? You have secured an eternal blessing for us. You have rescued us from our own sin. You have called us to follow you. You've said there's nothing we can do to earn it, to achieve it, to even pay you back for it. It is a free gift. But that those who receive that gift, those who are transformed by the gospel, will live differently. Lord, we should strive to every day, desiring to pay you back, yet knowing we can never. Yet we should do all that we can our gratefulness, our thankfulness. It comes from knowing that you have done all for us. And so we worship you. We praise you. We celebrate you in the sacrament of communion. We thank you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen. As we do each week, we celebrate the covenant symbol of the gospel right, as our elders and their wives come forward, what we do is we remind ourselves of the words that Jesus himself said. He took bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. He said that to those who are his disciples, not just to the world. This is my body broken for you, and so we believe that this is something for the church, that this is for something who have place their faith in Jesus live in repentance to Jesus have been baptized into his, his church that he said this is my body broken for you he said this, is a, this cup is a covenant in my blood making us a new covenant community in the church he says this is for the forgiveness of your sins this washes you clean your robes that are washed right, white in the blood of the lamb that, that's the cup he holds and then he tells his followers, do this in remembrance of me. And so we're going to invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, we're going to invite you to come forward and, and join us in communion. If you're not, you, you can abstain. If you're, you're not living a life that's in line with what you think Jesus is calling you to, you can, you can abstain today. We, we can talk, we can pray. If you have questions about the gospel, we'd love to talk to you. Our elders, me, our pastors, whoever. But for those of you who would, would you come and take the elements, return to your seat, and we're going to celebrate communion together. During this time, as you come up, pray. Think about that. Is there anything you just need to confess to God? Anything you need to repent of? Someone you need to forgive? Whatever it might be. That you can come with your hearts as clean and and prepared for this strength that he gives. And so, church, come. As we're wrapping up as those who are getting the elements are finishing. We're reminded again of the words of Jesus as he calls us to this moment. He says, Do this in remembrance of me. Paul will go on later and he will add the words As often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. He literally says, when you, when you gather and you do this together, you are proclaiming the gospel over yourselves. You're recognizing that, that if God had not given himself for you, you would not be here today. In the Reformed tradition, we call it a means of grace, a way that God strengthens us for the week, a way that God prepares us for the days ahead, like food nourishes the body, Communion nourishes us spiritually, and so if you are taking communion with us today, if you will pray with me, I'll lead us through communion. God, as we gather, we have prayed, we have confessed, we have forgiven, we have heard your word, we've hopefully repented of whatever it is you're calling us all to. Sometimes there's a collective move within us where you're teaching us kind of similar things or the same things, and Sometimes it's very individual, the things that we are doing that get in the way of our relationship with you. And I think this coming kingdom, where all is whole, where there's nothing broken, and your words make sense, this is my body broken. That you give of yourself in this broken world, for this broken world, that we might be restored to you. You took our penalty on your body in order that we don't have to take that penalty eternally. So Jesus, as you asked for the bread to be blessed, Father, we ask, would you bless this bread? Church, will you take and eat? Jesus, as you said, this is a covenant. This is a promise in my blood that our sins may be forgiven. Jesus, that you gave your sinless human life, your divine being, you gave yourself to death, a mystery. How the creator of the universe can die, I'll never understand. But you gave your life for us. Death couldn't hold you. You live today. We, we know you're alive, but you gave yourself for us. And you said, this is how this covenant is satisfied. And you said, this is that symbol. This is that meaning. This is my covenant to you and my blood. Just as you did, we ask, Father, will you bless this cup? Generations Church, will you take the cup? We are reminded that as often as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim the gospel. So God, will you strengthen us, nourish us, and send us into not just the rest of worship, but the rest of our lives empowered by you? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Will you guys please stand as we return into sing. We sing our last two or three songs. Please.